Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. If you haven't had a chance yet to subscribe to my newsletter, please head on over to dramyrobbins.com and subscribe. I do send out newsletters about once a week with just information that you can use and apply in your everyday life. You can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Today I have Dr. Ginger Campbell. Ginger is a physician with a long-standing interest in mind-body medicine, the brain, and consciousness. In 2014, she left emergency medicine to begin a fellowship in palliative care at the University of Alabama School of Medicine. She practices palliative medicine at the VA hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. She is currently the host of three podcasts, including the Brain Science Podcast, which explores how recent scientific discoveries are unraveling old age mysteries, such as intelligence, emotions, personality, and memory. She also recently released a new book titled, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Hi, quick little announcement. If you are interested in my program that's coming up, it will be, I think I'm going to release it around January or February, um, hoping for January. It's going to be about a 10 to 12 week program. I will be doing live workshops as well as live coaching. You'll have the opportunity to also learn from some experts that I will be bringing in around the concept of past lives and soul contracts. And we'll also be helping you really figure out a way to make sure that you are tapping into your essence and living your life backwards. So if you want to uh, click on that in my show notes, you'll be added to the wait list. You'll be the first to find out uh, when the program is launching and be able to sign up there. Um, and I think that's just about it for today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. So let's just get started with how you came to exploring consciousness. Right. So it's kind of a long spiritual journey I like to start with because I'm in a very, you might say, um, mainstream science place right now, but that's not where I started. Uh, I have a long interest in, as, as you know, mind-body medicine, and in the early days that included um, reading a lot of alternative medicine sources as well as exploring Eastern philosophy, such as Buddhism in particular. And what happened for me was after many years, and i back up one second, that included doing several vision quests, which I think is very important because for me, that was a, play, a time when I um, discovered that you can't really find the answers outside yourself. And we might come back mm. to that later. At any rate, um, after many years of exploring Eastern philosophy, I reached this kind of stuck place around 2002, 2003, where I was working with a lot of people who were really interested in things like um, Eastern medicine, 
Yet there didn't seem to be any way to incorporate new science into their thought. It was like they're going, oh, someone 2,000 years ago figured everything out and they were smarter than we are now. And, and this bothered me because they didn't seem to have any way to incorporate new evidence. So, I, so I, like I said, I felt kind of stuck, and I don't remember exactly why, but I decided to start reading Western philosophy for the first time ever, and I, I was in my um, late 40s at that point. I'd always found Western philosophy boring because, you know, you have to start with Aristotle and Plato, and they still... And it's so, like, treacherous to try to yeah, get and it, and it, it's still I still find Aristotle and Plato sort of boring. <laughs> but this time I really, you know, got, you know, was persistent. And what I discovered was that inside philosophy, there's an area known as philosophy of mind. And this is the philosophers who are thinking about consciousness. Okay. Mm. Uh, and, and Descartes would be considered a philosopher who represents a way of thinking of consciousness known as dualism. Okay. So, then I realized that we are reaching a point, and this is around 2003, 2004, reaching a point where neuroscientists are actually beginning to study consciousness. And this is a trend that's been going on at this point maybe 20 years. But before that, neuroscientists couldn't study consciousness. It was, it was considered out of bounds. In fact, I've, I've interviewed a number of leading neuroscientists who told me that in the early parts of their career, if you had decided to study neuroscience, it was the kiss of death. In fact, I have an episode coming out next in the end of the month with somebody from this time period. But at any rate, and also I, I interviewed a philosopher, um, Patricia Churchland, who told me she went into philosophy because at the time she was beginning her career, you couldn't study consciousness as a scientist. So the only choice, if you were interested in consciousness, was to study philosophy. So mm -hmm. there's been a big shift. So mm -hmm. now consciousness is considered um, accessible to neuroscience. And this is not just because of imaging, although imaging is a tool, but it also has to do with some uh, paradigm shifts within science itself. So that, I started to read a lot of neuroscience, and that was around the time that podcasting emerged, around 2005, and I was like, I, I want to do a podcast, but I, of course, I recorded my voice and hated it, and so I was like, no, I'm not going to do a podcast, <laughs> um, but I was on a on a discussion forum for someone else's show, and I kept putting – people would post things about the brain that were wrong, and I would say, if you just read X book, you would know this. And if you just read, read Y, you would know this. And finally, the host said, well, why don't you make a book review for my show? And I, mm. I did an episode uh, about the book On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. And Jeff Hawkins is actually the guy who invented the Palm Pilot for any geeks out there. But he had a lifelong passion for neuroscience, and when he made his, you know, became a millionaire from the Palm Pilot, he then went into neuroscience, and he has founded several neuroscience research institutes. In fact, right now, he's, he's very involved in a project to try to simulate the cortex in a computer. So anyhow, that was where I started. And when I recorded that, I was like, hey, I did a podcast about neuroscience. I would, I would never run out of material. 
right? And I started out with the key ideas that you sort of mentioned that I wanted to share, things like, you know, how does memory work and what do we know about consciousness? But I need to back up just one step and say that along this journey of discovering the neuroscience, it also affected my belief system because up until the time of learning the new neuroscience, I sort of thought that it was that there might be a need for some non-physical explanations for the brain and sort of the mind. But when I started reading things like Olaf Blanc's experiments with creating out-of-body experiences by stimulating the temporal cortex, I started to think, okay, we don't need a supernatural explanation. The brain can do it. Now, I will say that I do not believe consciousness is just the brain. I think it's a, um, a combination of the interaction of the brain, the body, and the world, which is sort of in the in the neuroscience world considered a extended view of consciousness. But can you, I just want to stop you for a second. Can you differentiate for my listeners brain versus mind? Okay. So funny thing is that not everybody agrees on the definition of mind. Okay. Does anybody agree on anything these days? No, but so I, like, think that, I think that in science that the key idea is that you you are clear about your definitions. You're clear about your definitions and you try to be clear about your starting assumptions, okay? Now, nobody is perfect about this because everybody has implicit assumptions that they don't even realize they're making. And that's the reason why there's no such thing as a theory that doesn't have assumptions, no matter how much we might work toward that. So I would, I work from the, my working definition of mind is that it's what the brain does. But I don't think the brain can do it by itself in the sense that I don't think you could put your brain in a vat and simulate the mind because the mind is embodied. It requires... So simulate like thinking, feeling. Right. You know, there, okay. there's a famous thought experiment known as the brain in the vat. I don't believe that that makes any sense because the only... The, the, we, our brain creates our experience of the world, but it does it by interacting with the world. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So the brain cannot exist in a vacuum. Right. I mean, I keep because it needs input, something to interact with. It, it gotcha. needs inputs. And okay. that's the reason why creating artificial intelligence is so difficult uh, because figuring out how to make artificial intelligence interact with the world is not as easy as you might think. I mean, when they first started trying to create robots, um, you know, they discovered that things like walking are really hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and that's because when we walk, our bodies interact with the world. Right. And we're responding to that. Right. Right, which is why Alexa now sits on a shelf <laughs> and doesn't walk around our house. <laughs> not yet, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, I got a sidetracked. So you were saying the brain, so we were talking about the brain, I stopped you with the brain and the mind, but you were kind of talking about um, your experience moving, shifting more towards looking at neuroscience and kind of away from spirituality and supernatural explanations right. and, for things. And I just want to sum this up by saying that I don't, for me, it doesn't take any of the beauty or wonder away from the experience. 
Okay. Um, when I, I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was actually thinking back on my vision quest that I had, and this was in 93, 94, 99-ish. Um, I was thinking about, you know, what lessons did I learn? And um, I went on these vision quests with groups of people. And I don't know if you're familiar with the vision quest format, but it's based on what Native Americans used to do, where they would go out solo and and fast, and um, mm-hmm. and then they would have an experience that usually involved um, picking their power animal and various things. And in the format that I did it in, each person would go out for their three days of solo. There were safety margins that I won't get into. But when we came back, each person shared their experience. And what I noticed was everybody's experience was different. Everybody's experience was not what they expected. No, Everybody goes in with an expectation, but usually what happens is not what they expected. And then each person has an interpretation of their experience. But what really matters is the experience. And Mm -hmm. so when I'm thinking about like um, the people on your show that talk about near death experiences, to me, what really matters is how does it affect your life? I mean, as, mm-hmm. as a physician, I've actually only, and I was an ER doctor for over 20 years, and I'll say that actually having patients report near-death experiences is pretty unusual, uh, partly because usually after someone has had a cardiac arrest, they're unconscious for a while, and then they tend to have amnesia for the event. So being able to report what happened is, uh, is pretty rare. But I actually only had one patient who ever told me they had a near-death experience. And the irony is... The guy said, I went to a really bad place that you don't want to (laughs) go, which I just found really surprising because I had read a lot of the literature at that point on on near-death experiences, and I was just kind of surprised by by that. I I couldn't resist sharing that. (laughs) Well, and and I want to just provide some context. When I reached out to you, you did say, I don't necessarily think that what I have studied supports a lot of what you've talked about on the show. And I thought it was interesting because I I felt like I want to give my listeners an opportunity to make their own, to come to their own conclusions, because I think that that's how you come to understand life, to your point, how you make meaning out of things. And so it actually was important for me to have you on because you do have a different perspective. And I think it's interesting because the title of the book is, Are You Sure? And and so I think that, and one of the things you pose in the book, I think in your interaction with the um, the doctor you interviewed is we've gotten sort of so steadfast in our belief system that this is the way it is and I know it's the way it is and it has to be that way, that we haven't allowed for conversation mm-hmm. to just be curious and wonder and and be open. And so that's why I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to hear sort of your perspective on the unconscious and intuition and gut feelings and all of these things that I do talk about. Um, and just let people hear another side of it. And so, I appreciate that opportunity. So can you can you talk a little bit about why 
we are so determined to be so certain. Sometimes I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I think it's how we're wired, so to speak, in the sense that we are constantly, we, we, we sort of try to ignore this, but actually what really goes on most of the time is that we're making decisions with incomplete information, right? Yet we have to move forward. And I don't know if you've ever known anybody who mm -hmm. couldn't make decisions. They're very difficult to deal with, right? <laughs> um, so we have to make decisions. And for most of us, making decisions requires that we have some feeling of certainty that we're making the right decision. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, that that's just, you know, part of being human. And it seems that, you know, there's a diversity among us between those of us who can be comfortable with the uncertainty and those of us who need to be absolutely sure about things, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, we, and, and we see that. Um, but you can see why, from a survival point of view, it makes sense for people to, to be be certain because otherwise you would be paralyzed by indecision. Well, and I think it's so interesting to think about your book in the context of where we are now, because it seems like the uncertainty, certainly in my experience working with patients right now, the uncertainty is so paralyzing for people because it's so in our faces in a way that I don't think it, that in a way that we have denied or repressed before. It's like we were, there was never the opportunity for really that much certainty and control. You just believed it was a facade that you thought you had certainty and control, and now that's been blown up. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly the reason why I wanted to share my own experience about my vision quest, because I remember thinking at, on my first vision quest, I reached this point. Uh, it, I don't know if I would call it a mystical experience, but I reached this point where I realized that inside myself, deep inside myself, there was this pay, please, place of peace. I was sitting in the upper um, high desert, and I was in a place where there had been a forest fire, and was looking at the little flowers, you know, growing up around where the forest fire had been. And I suddenly had this realization that, you know, life is very tough. And we probably can't wipe it out. Now, that's not to say that we can't wipe out a lot of good stuff, but it's pretty tough. And, and, I, and it, that gave me a sense of, you know, maybe I could let go of my, and I was doing the own, own, my own uncertainties of that time, which was a different time from now. I was really concerned about environmental issues at the time. And this was before global warming was even really on the um, radar. But I was still very interested in, in environmental problems and, and the risks of that. And when I realized that piece of peace inside myself, I thought, well, you know, I can let go of trying to fix the rest of the world. And I bring this up because I think it might be something that each of us could do today because I suffer from it too. I wake up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about the future of democracy in the United States. You should call me. I'm up too. <laughs> you know, and, and um, I do. And so... I do it, you know, almost every every night, right? And how do we deal with with that? Um, 
I, I don't really know, but sometimes I feel like I can try to hang on to um, the stuff that I do have. And, you know, I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. So when you, when you talk about the unconscious, can you explain what the unconscious is, what free will is, and what decision-making is and how they all fit together kind of in the context of, of brain science. I okay. know that's like a yeah, big question. Yeah, you a big, big, big one there. Okay, so let's talk, <laughs> let's talk with the unconscious. Start with the unconscious, okay? Um, because that's another one of those who agrees on what it is terms. Um, in neuroscience, when we use the term unconscious, we are talking about things that the brain does that are not accessible to our awareness or inquiry. So you can't get to them by, you know, self-analysis. You can't get to them by meditation. You can't get to them by dreams. You just can't get to them. It's not Freud's unconscious. I mean, Freud had a good idea that things were unconscious, but most of what he taught, you know, doesn't stand up to scientific scrutiny. But, the, the reality is that most of the processing our brain does is unconscious. That's a good thing because we wouldn't be able to operate if we had to think about how to breathe and how to perceive the world and all the stuff our brain does that we, it just, you know, the world appears to us. I'm looking at this room. There's all these things here. They're just there. I don't have to think about how I perceive them. That's what um, unconscious is in a neuroscientific standpoint. And when I say most of it's unconscious and when it relates to decision making if anybody knows anything about deep learning which is a new form of AI um, well not new but it's the way that well speech recognition in Alexa works um, it has what they call hidden layers which is to say that the person who designed the software designed some of it and some of it but there's a stuff in the middle that they don't really know what's going on that's the hidden layer. That's the way our brain is. Most of the stuff that's going on, we can't control it. It, it, um, it does its thing, and we see the results. Um, the neat thing is that when we learn how to do something, you know, once it becomes automatic, we no longer have to think about it. Remember how hard it was when you were learning how to drive? Okay, so we have the ability to make things automatic. You couldn't think about a lot of what you do about, and when you get ready to teach your kids how to drive, it's it can be challenging because you don't really remember. I mean, I I I remember thinking how narrow the road seemed. <laughs> do you remember that? But at any rate, um, so when I'm talking about unconscious, I'm talking about things that could have never been conscious, like perception or things that were also once conscious that have been made automatic. Um, the way we know about this in brain imaging is we see different parts of the brain light up when you're learning something as opposed once it's become automatic. Do you want me to try to tackle free will? Because <laughs> that's a big... Well, I, I actually have a question about differentiating how you differentiate sort of the brain unconscious from like a Freud perspective on unconscious. It sounds like how you're talking about unconscious is sort of the operations of how we function. Right. And a good way to think of it is, um, or a way that I find helpful is that, um, you know, your brain does not model itself. 
It models the world. It models your body. So you have, it doesn't tell you anything about what it's doing. <laughs> and, and so it's all that stuff that, it, that, that we can't get to that it's doing, right? Um, so that's, that, is, that is very different from the Freudian idea, which is that the unconscious contains a bunch of stuff that we stuffed away that we don't want to think about. Mm-hmm. And so would brain science, neuroscience say that is not true? Well, for the most part, I mean, there are rare instances where people repress memories, but most of the science shows that that is not really the way memory works. So, you know, that's a big can of worms I don't think we need to necessarily go into today, <laughs> but I recommend the writings of... We're going to have our own yeah, podcast so, Yeah, I think you should interview Elizabeth Loftus if you want to really get into the science of that. Okay, so, so can you talk a little bit about free will? Okay, so free will is one of those topics that... Um, just like consciousness, even among neuroscientists who are committed to a purely scientific approach, don't necessarily agree on. I mean, some people see it as an epiphenomenon. Some people see it as an illusion. Um, and it certainly gets into that you know, feeling of knowing whatever you think about it is what you think about it, right? Um, <laughs> uh, the metas. I love the metas. Yeah, so um, I interviewed, uh, sorry, I, I actually did interview the authors, but I read, I did a book once called um, Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? <laughs> and, and it was kind <laughs> of about this issue. Um, but the way I look at it is, we do have the ability to make choices. We, I mean, we do. And when we make choices, those choices affect the choices we're going to make in, in the future. So, for example, if I decide that I'm going to be nice to people, right, and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, I'm going to assume most people are good, then the first time, as soon as I meet somebody, right, my automatic behavior is going to fit that. Okay, mm -hmm. so to a certain extent, then that's become uh, an automatic choice, right? It's not necessarily in my, I, I'm not necessarily making a conscious decision to do that at that point, because in the past, I've made other conscious decisions, right, that have made that. So then it, be it becomes my choice, right? Um, so that's kind of but the way. But then does it become unconscious? Then does that become an unconscious well, way of being? I think, I, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think it does to a certain extent because you look at the way people behave, right? I mean, what people right. and, and the people who do work in this area say that when people make moral choices, what they do is they pick like that and then they make up a reason, <laughs> right? Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's been replicated many times that well, people will make, make choices and then they then they rationalize the choices. And, and we do that in all different ways, but, um, um, uh, so right. I, so I, I come okay. down, you know, this is my personal, just my personal opinion. It's not a scientific fact. I, I believe that we do have free will, but there are other people who think that we, that we don't, um, I think the problem with saying that you don't have free will because some stuff has become automatic is it takes away the issue, the, the feeling of responsibility. I'm kind of, you know, I'm old and I don't like 
things that make take away people's responsibility. I, mm-hmm. I think people should be responsible for what they do, um, mm-hmm. unless they have you know some kind of severe brain problem. They should be res- they're responsible for, for what they do, but mm-hmm. that but again that that's a bias on my part, right? It's not like a scientific fact. Um, well, and I think I have that similar like when I work with people. And when we talk about trauma or abuse that that has been perpetuated for generations and and people say, well, you know, I always say it it is an explanation for behavior. It's not an excuse for behavior. So we can understand it, right? Because this happened to someone and so they went on and perpetuated that or felt, you know, that they had a right to do whatever it was. But it doesn't make it okay. Have you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just recently reread it. It was... Um, I, I think I might need to reread I think it again if you, because this is the third time this week <laughs> that it has been brought up for me. So <laughs> maybe it's time. Yeah, and if you do you do Audible because I think it's on um, free mm-hmm. on Audible right now if you have a subscription. Okay. Oh, wow. I do, yeah. So I want to talk a bit about intuition because that's a big thing that I talk about. How do you describe the feeling of knowing when people say, like, I just had a gut feeling mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a feeling of intuitive knowing okay. from a brain perspective? Okay. So just to, to, to piggyback on the work of Robert Burton, who was an inspiration for my book, um, he, he makes the point that it has to do with how it, you know, whether you have a sense of effort. So, you know, if you're sitting there and you're doing an equation and you get to the end, you feel like, well, you did that, right? But if you um, are trying to make a decision and you decide that you're going to sleep on it and you wake up the next morning and you go, aha, I know this is what I'm going to do, that feels different. Right. Mm -hmm. So intuition is when a strong feeling about something comes to you, feeling as if it's coming out of nowhere. Now, because of no sense of effort, Mm. um, because you haven't been necessarily and and most scientists believe that, um, you know, when you've got a really hard problem, you need to work on it, work on it, work on it and then leave it alone, right? So your brain can percolate and make new ideas. So, you know, that's nothing nothing magical. But depending on your belief system, you may come to a different interpretation of the thing that pops up from your intuition. And, of course, there's been several books about this, you know, in recent years, like Blink by Malcolm Gladwell that almost make intuition into some kind of, like, you know, magical ability um i think i think the most important thing to remember about intuition is a we have a reason for it if i was walking in the woods and all of a sudden i see something that looks like a snake it's better for me to assume it's a snake and not step on it than to wait and figure it out right that's not intuition but it's a similar sort of experience um so back to our thing about we have to make decisions with incomplete information and intuition is a tool that our brain gives us for doing this. You know, it processes all the stuff we've put in there. Maybe it connects it together. There's a lot of people doing work in creativity now that th- where they think that 
the key to creativity is taking the pieces that we don't, we haven't connected consciously and throwing them together in a new way. And intuition mm. is, is, I think, related to that. So th- I think for me, the key thing about intuition is if you're in a situation where you have a choice and your intuition tells you something, remember that intuition is not infallible. It's one of the things the brain does. It's not infallible. If you're deciding whether to run or, you know, avoid somebody that you think is dangerous, sure, go right with it. But, you know, if you're making a decision about changing a career, you know, maybe also sit down and do the good old-fashioned Benjamin Franklin list of pros and cons, too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, the key idea I want people to learn is that it's, intuition is not magic, we all right. have it. Now, some of us are better than others, like at paying attention to it. As a physician, I learned early on about the gut feeling, which to me is the same thing. Of If I had the feeling in my, worried about a particular bad thing that might be wrong with the person, because as an ER doctor, your first job is making sure people don't die. So if, a, if something bad pops into my head, this person might have a certain thing wrong with them. I learned early on, I had to listen to that. And even if I couldn't logically justify that, I needed to prove the person didn't have that thing. Um, And I'm not going to go, I learned the hard way that I needed to listen to that voice. And so Mm -hmm. if a nurse comes up to me and says, do you think they might have X? And I don't think so. I'm going to say, no, but let's make sure. Mm. Okay, because because that person had some intuition, mm-hmm. which could have been based. So what you're saying is that could have been based on their set of experiences mm-hmm. that unconsciously led them to that outcome, right? That that gut feeling, right? And you know, getting down into the nitty gritty about what we do understand um, is, you know, a lot of it seems to be pattern recognition, you know. Um, this, did you read Blank by Malcolm Gladwell? Do you know about? I think I did. Okay. But you know, or I mean, maybe I read David and Goliath. I but, there, I but there's these examples of people who can tell things like whether baby chicks are male or female, even though they look so much alike. And it's like they can just tell because they've seen so many of them. And um, of course, in medicine, we do the same thing. We've seen many patients with the same thing. So we, we automatically do a pattern recognition um, and putting, I think it's a combination of the pattern recognition and maybe putting pieces together. We still don't understand it very well, but we understand it well enough to believe, at least I understand it well enough to believe that it's something our brain does. Um, and it's really, really valuable. And um, it's just, I, I just, I just don't want people to think it's magical and think that somehow you know, that's the only thing they should use to make their decisions. That's just, just my sort of take on that. So one last question before we go, what is neuroscience to, what is neuroscience able to tell us about the mind and where do you feel like it's limited and what it can tell us? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of places that we haven't even discovered yet. Hmm. 
I'm thinking about what Robert Burton always says about, you know, the problem is we're studying the mind with our mind and it's like a con man, (laughs) you know, it's like going to a con man and asking him to explain to you what's really going on. Um, Whereas another scientist that I interviewed said, you know, it's really the, the brain is creating a cartoon world for us and it leaves out stuff we don't need to know. Um, so for example, it feels like, um, we're looking at the world out of our eyes, right? Even though that's not what's really happening, you know, Mm -hmm. the information's going to our brain and getting turned into images, but it still feels like, well, it makes sense because we orient everything about where our head is. And so that sort of cartoon version works. Um, so um, I guess the things I, it can't tell us, it's like neuroscience, I don't think neuroscience will ever solve completely. Sorry, I didn't mean to make that noise. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it can tell us where creativity comes from or love comes from. It can tell us, oh, mm-hmm. so these neurotransmitters are involved. That's not love. Love is the thing we actually experience. Neuroscience Mm -hmm. can tell us that we're wired to be social, and that's why we're all so miserable right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay? Mm Because we're not wired to. We're actually wired to touch each other. Mm -hmm. Okay? And and so, you know, if you live alone like I do, got a golden retriever, that's, you know, my only touching. So, um, yeah, yeah. So it can tell us, you know, that we're wired to be the way we are, but it can't tell us what's right and wrong, for example. Mm. Uh, That's kind of a big one. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not, it's not everything. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are some insights that can tell us, you know, like, for example, understanding that memory doesn't work like a video camera that it's dynamic mm-hmm. and constantly changing means that we shouldn't get mad at our best friend because they rem- remember an incident different from us. Right. Hmm. Well, oh my God, we covered a lot here today in a short period of time. I felt like we could have gone deep on each of these, but I think that for me and in, in listening to you, the takeaway is interesting, which is that maybe some of this falls somewhere in between it all. Like that there, that there's a, a little bit of both, that there's a little bit of magic in the intuition and you have to do your broken list. That there's a little bit of, um, you know, just, I, I don't, there's just so much in between mm-hmm. all of this. That's just, it's just such an interesting discussion. So thank you so much for your time today, your insights, your wisdom, well, your intelligence. Well, thank you. I just I just want to say again that the science takes nothing away from the mystery. It really doesn't. It it mm-hmm. makes it um, even more amazing, in my opinion. Yeah, and some of the science, like to me, is is magical in so many ways. So, if my listeners are interested, where can they find you? Probably the best place is just brainsciencepodcast.com. That's that's a good place. And um, my book, Are You Sure the Unconscious Origins of Certainty, is available Amazon and everywhere else that you can buy books, paperback or ebooks. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 
Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>